From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. State lawmakers approved Colorado's red flag gun law in the last legislative session. It allows firearms to be removed temporarily from people who might be at risk of harming themselves or others. We'll get insight into new gun measures that could be up for debate next. Plus, what's the difference between okay without a period and okay with one? When it comes to texting, the answer is a lot. You know, internet linguistics is an actual field of study now. I think it comes down to that it's it's a valid way of communicating. Like, this is language now. From punctuation marks to code switching, how teens use texting to process their emotions. Then, it was a whitewashing of Native Americans by the federal government. Now, as the courts debate guidelines for adoptions, one woman reflects on how it's forever changed her life. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. State lawmakers approved Colorado's red flag gun law in the last legislative session. It allows firearms to be removed temporarily from people who might be at risk of harming themselves or others. Now it looks like both parties are looking ahead to the next session in January, when Democrats will introduce new measures that take very different approaches to gun safety than some Republicans would like. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland is keeping tabs on all this. Hi, Benta. Hi, Avery. Democrats continue to control the legislature in both the House and the Senate and the governor's office. What are you hearing from some of them on ideas for the next session around gun safety? Well, we don't have all of the details yet, but two Democrats told me they want to tackle better ways to track firearms that are stolen and safe storage for firearms. Representative Tom Sullivan of Centennial is entering his second year at the Capitol, and he's made passing stricter gun laws his top priority. His son Alex was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting, and last session he sponsored the so-called red flag gun law. I'm not going to be somebody that that I'm not. That's why I'm here, is to talk about that issue. There are other things that we can do, like lost and stolen. We can do something about smash and grabs. There was the thought that federally they were going to do something about raising the minimum age purchase of a long gun. It looks like all of those kinds of issues from federally are going to be put on hold until, you know, after the election. So we might have to look at, at something like that. There was an attempt from some Republicans to recall Sullivan from office over his sponsorship of the red flag gun law. How contentious do you think the gun issue will be in the next session? It usually is a divisive topic in Colorado. Remember back in 2013, two Democratic state senators were recalled from office over their support for universal background checks and a high-capacity magazine ban. It wasn't for another six years that Democrats introduced a gun bill, and that was the red flag measure. Dick Wadhams is the former state chair of the GOP party. He said essentially the devil is in the details. If measures like safe storage and reporting stolen guns are done without Republican support, he thinks it'll come across as a Democratic overreach. And he said, just like the red flag law, it might sound good on the surface, but he feels there could be extraordinary costs to restricting gun rights. Any sense of whether Republicans at the state house will back more restrictive gun laws? 
I think it's pretty unlikely, especially in an election year. In fact, one Republican lawmaker is going in the opposite direction and plans to introduce a bill to repeal the state's high-capacity magazine ban. That's been introduced before, and it's not likely to get very far in the Democratic-controlled legislature. Senate Minority Leader Republican Chris Holbert from Douglas County recently talked to Colorado Matters specifically about the safe storage law, which is something Democrats plan to introduce next session. If we had a safe storage law, is the idea that a parent or a gun owner who takes some effort to lock up firearms and make them not accessible, would that then become an affirmative defense for those people? Or would it depend on how safe the safe is and some measure of liability? Um, I, I, I don't understand what the proposed solution would be. I haven't seen a bill. So I'm, I'm skeptical. Are you surprised Democrats would take up the issue of guns that has been controversial, especially after so many big agenda items last session and it being an election year? Yes and no. I talked to Ian Silveri with Progress Now, and he said, look, every week there's another mass shooting in America. And he says Colorado has, quote, an obscene suicide rate in large part because he thinks it's too easy to buy a gun. Democratic State Representative Monica Duran, who's looking at sponsoring a safe storage law, says lawmakers need to bring these issues forward and have tough conversations. It is worth noting that some Democrats have told me they're concerned about how this could be framed, especially in an election year, and used against them. It's also worth noting that there are some bipartisan areas of agreement around not guns, but school safety. School violence is a topic that the government has tried to address for years, and the latest attempt began in the wake of the deadly shooting this May at STEM School in Highlands Ranch, and it includes things like more money for mental health resources in schools. Benta, thanks for this insight. Thank you. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland looking ahead to what gun safety measures state lawmakers are positioned to consider in the upcoming legislative session. That starts in January. Suicide is the leading cause of death in Colorado for young people between the ages of 10 and 24, and the state has the 10th highest suicide rate nationwide. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control. Statistics like that are prompting members of Congress to work to improve suicide prevention programs, CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. There are countless families across Colorado who've lost loved ones to suicide. As communities work to tackle the problem, Democratic Representative Joe Nagus of Boulder says Congress needs to get involved. I think there's a robust role and a muscular one that the federal government can play. First off, Nagus thinks Congress should put more money into prevention. He's pushing Senate and House appropriations committees to provide the highest level of funding possible for mental health programs that reduce suicide among young Americans and improve mental health. I think this is an issue where Republicans and Democrats can come together in trying to find ways to better support local communities and local programs that are working. Susan Marine is chair of the Suicide Prevention Coalition of Colorado. She says more federal funds are needed to put suicide prevention programs and policies into place. The state of Colorado puts a relatively small amount of resources into suicide prevention. So any additional resources that can be brought to bear are most welcome and and important. With more money, states could make existing programs more robust and add new ones. Republican Senator Cory Gardner is hopeful that his bipartisan package of bills will help local communities do just that. For example, 
He's sponsoring the Stand Up Act, which he says will help schools with the resources they need to uh, have the tools to stop uh, the, the bullying or mental health abuse that they see that goes unanswered. The bill has the backing of Sandy Hook Promise, a nonprofit led by families that lost loved ones in the Sandy Hook school shooting. The group says youth suicide and violence against others is preventable, but many are unaware of the warning signs. Sherry Cole can relate. Ten years ago, Cole's 16-year-old son David took his own life. I didn't know the things I know now, um, which I know would have made a difference um, in terms of giving him more opportunity to still be here. Now she's Colorado Area Director for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. The volunteer organization is advocating for a popular bipartisan measure to create a national three-digit number, 988, to reach a local suicide prevention hotline. The FCC plans to vote on this in December. The bill in Congress would provide additional funding for the number. The House version has more than 100 co-sponsors, including three of Colorado's members. Gardner is a Senate sponsor and says the simplicity can save lives. This mental health uh, emergency line uh, is something that is going to have real impact immediately, something that children will be able to recall and uh, our, our eldest of seniors. Even Cole, who knows several different hotline numbers, sometimes has trouble rattling them off. 988 makes it easy. That will help make um, life-saving resources more accessible and help normalize help-seeking. Maureen, with the Suicide Prevention Coalition, agrees. But it's another Gardner bill that she's got her eye on. It's a bill for school loan repayment of mental health professionals who work in underserved areas. They'd get one-sixth of their education debt repaid for every year of service, up to $250,000 over six years. Maureen says access is a problem for rural Colorado. Uh, there is simply uh, a lack of enough providers who want to practice in these areas. As she sees it, the bill addresses two problems. One is the shortage of mental health professionals, and secondly, the cost of getting a, a mental health professional education. More professionals are needed because more people are talking about mental health. Cole with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention says there is a paradigm shift taking place, and not just in Congress. The number of people that have, you know, discomfort around talking about mental health, uh, we feel that that's shrinking, but it's because of the rest of it that's growing and more people being willing to literally open up and talk and share because we believe that talk can save lives. And that talk is leading to congressional action. As Gardner says, suicide is a public health problem that Congress cannot ignore. Losing someone every seven hours from suicide is, is not acceptable, and so Congress needs to act. Congress members have introduced more than 100 bills to tackle the problem of suicide, from veterans and youth to education and research. For members of Colorado's delegation working this issue, they're hopeful that some of these bills will get past the political logjam holding up other public health measures. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Ashley, throw out some prompts. And we'll start with an easy one, which is okay with seven Ks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay, how about okay exclamation point? Okay. Okay question mark. Okay. Okay period. Okay. Ooh, yeah. In the age of texts and direct messages and emails, punctuation plays a huge role in communicating tone. As a part of CPR's ongoing series, Teens Under Stress, we're asking Denverite editor Ashley Dean and 15-year-old Clarice how phones affect the way they communicate. We're just going to use Clarice's first name to protect her privacy as a minor. Ashley and Clarice, hi. Hello. Hello. 
We sometimes hear that texting has broken language with all the emojis and slang words. Ashley, you recently reported a story for Denbright that pushed back on this idea. What are some of the benefits to communicating through text? Um, So one of the things I talked to Clarice about Mm -hmm. and some other teens is that you know, it really gives you the time to sort of think through your thoughts, revise your thoughts even. You know, you can kind of, if you have something really important you need to say, you can take the time to make sure you're saying it the right way. Um, as opposed to, you know, in-person conversations where you're sort of under a lot of pressure, you might blurt something out that maybe you didn't think through so well. <laughs> and, yeah. and now you've escalated whatever situation you're in. Um, do you think Definitely. that's... I totally agree. I think texting has really helped me process my emotions more, especially mm-hmm. and friendships and all of that. So it's really helpful for me as a writer too to write out what I'm feeling versus speak it out not so eloquently or literately maybe. And Clarice, are there times that you've had conversations over text that you wouldn't have had in person? Oh, definitely. It just helps you delve deeper, I think, into things and helps you get to the root of the issue. Whereas in conversation, like as humans, we speak in subtext and a lot of what we say has such a double meaning. And in text, of course, there still is that double meaning and maybe passive aggressiveness, yet it's less pronounced. So that's really helpful when you're communicating and expressing yourself. So I want to try something. I'm going to give you a situation and I want you to both answer how you would write it out in text, what punctuation marks you'd use or emojis or acronyms. Y'all ready? Oh, Oh my, yes. (laughs) Okay. Your friend asks you, are you mad at me? Now, you're not in this situation. How do you respond in a way that ensures that they know you're fine? Oh, there's definitely at least one exclamation point for me, you know, and and probably not just a no exclamation point, but, you know, no, no, of course not. Why? What's what's wrong? Why would you think that? You know, I'm probably not only saying no with exclamation points, which in texts are always friendly, I think, Mm -hmm. um, but also kind of like overemphasizing it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd probably be like, no, not at all. Exclamation point. And then question like, what made you think that? Maybe, I don't know, keep it simple, depending on how dramatic I'm feeling that day. (laughs) (laughs) I hear exclamation points, maybe some question marks, no Mm -hmm. periods. No. No. Why no periods? Because it feels like accusatory a little bit, and I feel like you got to battle accusations with a little pizzazz, like a little exclamation point, a little question mark, no periods. That's too mundane, I feel Mm -hmm. like. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I found a study when I was writing the story that most people, I think it, it surveyed undergraduates, they found that periods were insincere. Yeah. As opposed to, you would think that a period would sort of lend like a finality mm-hmm. to a sentence, but instead it makes it sound like you don't really mean it. Oh, yeah. You know, no. But there's subtext here. And that's <laughs> the subtext you're talking about yes. that can happen over text message. Generationally, Ashley, you're 31. Clarice, you're 15. Do you guys feel like there are differences in the ways even generations so close text? Oh, definitely. Like, even when I'm texting, I have some friends that are, like, 30s and 40s. Even when I'm texting them, I feel like they use a lot more periods even than my friends do. Like, when I text with my friends, there's hardly any punctuation, honestly, unless we're having, like, a serious conversation or a heart-to-heart. Whereas with my parents and millennials, it's definitely more proper. Yeah, 
I, I think we're a little more proper, although definitely not as proper as my yeah. parents. My dad very famously writes like eloquent texts. Yes. <laughs> so yes. weird. I'm sorry if he's listening to this. Um, but um, I think an interesting divide, too, is between old millennials and new millennials. I'm right in the middle, born mm-hmm. in 1988. And people older than me tend to be a lot more formal than some of my friends who are, yeah. say, 26 or 27. I think mm-hmm. text a lot more like people in Gen Z do. It's really yeah. a weird divide. I know. Yeah. Even my dad, like, he'll just send a text and it's like, I don't know, four inches long. And it's just yeah. an email pretty much. But in text form, it's not <laughs> like the use text of text. novel. Yeah. Yes. So this could have been done in a text is the new. This could have been done in an email. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, Ashley, as you've been researching for this for your reporting, do you feel like you perceive texts differently from folks in Gen Z? Hmm. I I don't know if I do. I think I already had a pretty good sense of it. I think the main difference is that now all of my friends are very hyper aware of the way they text me. Mm-hmm. After you put out this article yes, about punctuation yes. I get people texting. who have apologized to me because they didn't know that they were using periods in an aggressive way. <laughs> That's funny. Um, luckily, funny. I, don't, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I'd like to think I was already pretty aware of the way I was coming across. I'm also curious about text length. You mentioned that Mm -hmm. somebody could send a four-inch text and that just seems unreasonable. Mm -hmm. But what is about an average text length and an average time length of conversation for you over text? Definitely. I'd say when I'm with my friends, text, we like don't send one long text. It's often like maybe four or five short texts that have five to ten words in them, if even. And it's just to convey, like, our excitement about things and just spur of the moment. It's the same way that we have conversations, just, like, very quickly, whereas text conversations probably last an hour or less at this point, but it kind of comes in fluctuations depending on where I'm at in my friendships with people. Ashley, what about for you? Yeah, I don't think any of mine ever last that long. Um, yeah. And I, I'm not sure why that is. Maybe just everybody's mm-hmm. at work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have friends with young kids who just in the middle of a conversation mm-hmm. will disappear. And yeah. if I were younger, that would make me panic. Mm-hmm. But now I'm, I'm like, feeling oh, well, some panic just hearing you say yes. that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. But I've learned to remember like, oh, no, they have small children who need their mm-hmm. attention. And texting yeah. me is not as important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for me, I feel like it really depends on just how far away the person who I'm texting Mm -hmm. is if it's somebody who I'm just keeping up with at a distance like that might be a longer conversation if it's a friend here I mean that's so maybe we text back and forth like a couple of times and then you can kind of break the rules of like what's proper and not when it's just with a friend that's close because you'll talk to them in person soon enough so it doesn't have to be crazy poetical texting or anything like that Clarice do you ever have conversations on the phone like an actual phone call god it kind of It stresses me out whenever I have to call someone. I know that's such a stereotype, yet picking up my phone and I like having to make a call if I'm just contacting someone for something professional or whatnot. It's like I have to write a script out before I do it. I'm like, hello, my name is Clarice. And then da 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 da. It's all written out in my notebook. So no, it stresses me out. (laughs) Ashley, is that something that you've had to learn for reporting or do you feel like it's something that you've always done? I think I'm losing the ability to call people or or at least my my comfort level with it. I almost yeah. never call my friends um, mm-hmm. unless it's really urgent. Clarice, have you ever felt like your ability to have a conversation in person is impacted by the way you communicate through a screen? I don't think so, especially because I just really enjoy having conversations and 
I've, I'd call myself a bit of a conversationalist. Granted, I'm a Gemini too, so just love banter and all of that. <laughs> Yet I will say, especially after reading Ashley's article, I feel so conscious of how much I say the word like. And I know that's <laughs> such a stereotype too. Yet when I'm texting, I definitely say like a lot. And when I'm talking, I'm like, oh God, I'm saying like, like 12,000 times. It's awful. So I'm even during this interview trying to ratchet it back a little bit. <laughs> Um, And I imagine that there is a concern from some parents and older generations that teens today that they won't even be able to pick up on facial cues or body language. Does that seem reasonable to you guys? That's a little crazy. Yeah, I mean, and it's like body language is so instinctual, like it's something so ingrained in the human mind. I feel like that it's not just going to be one generation of texters that's going to obliterate all that. I still overanalyze people's body language, so I don't think that's a valid accusation. And I think there's a whole new skill of interpreting emojis, yes, gestures and body language oh, that yeah. older generations don't have. Like you see um, boomers on Facebook using the laughing, crying emoji to mean oh, actual God. crying. And yes. it's like, your aunt died and it's the laughing, crying emoji. I don't know if you've seen oh, this. Oh, no, it's, I've never oh, seen this. It's a real problem. I'm distressed. Oh, that <laughs> is really distressing. upsetting. Ashley, as you were doing your research, what did you hear from experts about the ways that teens are communicating today? You know, internet linguistics is an actual field of study now. I should mm-hmm. say that. So that's really interesting. I think it comes down to that it's it's a valid way of communicating. Like this is language now and we're not really losing anything. And we found that teens are code switching too. It's not like they don't know how to write complete sentences or how to engage with somebody in a professional situation. And what does code switching mean in this context? In this context, it would it would be the difference, I would say, between texting your friend and texting your grandmother. If you're texting your grandmother, you're probably writing very complete sentences, ending mm-hmm. everything with a period. Yes. Um, the way you would maybe write, the same way you would like write a letter to her. Whereas if yeah. you're texting your friends, you might have a ton of run-on sentences, yes. like wild punctuation and whatever yes. else. So Definitely. having to be aware that okay with a period could mean a different thing for your grandmother than it does for your friend yes. even. Yes. I guess even something that I just thought of that we haven't really talked about, and I don't know if you'll know what this is, but keyboard smashing, where you just yes. hit the keyboard mm-hmm. and it's all these random letters. Like, that's an interesting new text linguistic as well, because I hardly know in a conversation when there's just silence. Like, it's so awkward when you're having a conversation with someone for it to just be silence. So having that in a text where it's just pretty much filler and silence is an interesting concept as well. I have used keyboard smashing to mean like a moment of extreme frustration. So you're telling me Mm -hmm. that it's a way of basically I'm thinking of old message boards of like saying bump or like wordlessness. Like my friends use it when they don't have anything else to say. And I'm like, well, come on, come up with something to say. That's kind of lame. Anyways, that's my personal. This is new for me. I haven't heard this one. Yeah, I use it for sort of frustration or like bad surprise, Mm -hmm. I would say. I kind of do it for excitement, but only in very rare Mm. situations. Yeah, I guess I guess I do do that one, too. Or Mm -hmm. just a series of exclamation points. Oh, yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ten plus. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you both so much for having this conversation. Of Of course. Ashley Dean is the editor of Denverite, and Clarice is a sophomore at Denver School of the Arts. This conversation is a part of CPR's ongoing series, Teens Under Stress, and we want to hear from you about the pressures teens face. Let us know at CPR.org teens. Can I ask you all before we end, oh, what yeah. is your most used emoji on your phone? Apart from the heart emoji, oh, because that's, that is no my most used, but I think mine's the like sobbing face. <laughs> 
<laughs> are you okay? But, but, but not in the oh, not in the not in the sad way. In the way where you're like, oh my god, that's yeah. so cute. I love oh. it. Yeah, mine is the purple heart and then the drooling emoji. I don't know what that oh. says about me. Oh, mine is the laughing, crying, yeah. but then it's the grimacey face. So oh, that's okay. funny. The yeah. awkward. Yeah, my dad overuses that one. <laughs> this is Colorado Matters on CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. Forty-one years ago this month, the Indian Child Welfare Act took effect. And this month, a federal appeals court ruled it will rehear a case that challenges its validity. The act sets guidelines for the adoption of Native American children. It was created after a different federal program led to the adoption of thousands of Native American children to white families in the 1950s and 60s. These adoptions were mostly closed, and once the children grew up, they had questions about their identities and their birth parents. Susan Harness was one of those children. She lives in Fort Collins now. When she was 18 months old, social workers removed her from the Flathead Reservation in Montana, then placed her with a white family. She writes about the experience in her memoir, Bitter Root, a Salish memoir of transracial adoption. She shares her story with my colleague, Ryan Warner. You were the only child in your adopted family. Um, What did they tell you early on about your birth parents? Well, basically, um, so I always knew I was adopted. I always knew that, um, that I was American Indian. I learned later I was Salish. And when I started asking about my birth parents, I was told that they died in a car accident. Was that true? No. (laughs) Not true. No, and I didn't find that out until my my early 20s. Do you remember the day you found out and how you found out? Oh, um, yeah, I found out because I had... Um, I had gone up to social services in Montana to see if they could tell me anything about my birth family, anything about my birth parents. And because I I had started a search and I had been lucky enough to talk with an employee who basically allowed me to surreptitiously view my file. And as I'm going through all the information for why I was removed and and everything that the file contained, I saw that my birth mom was living on the Flathead Indian Reservation, 30 miles away from where I was currently living. Oh, my goodness. We'll talk more about that search in just a bit. But um, will you describe for us what it was like growing up with the white family in Montana? It's isolating. And um, in Montana, racism against American Indians is second only to Alaska. And a big reason for that is there are seven Indian reservations. And as a consequence, everybody seems to have a story. Everybody has a story of a brother or an uncle or a cousin having a run-in with an Indian. And as I was growing up, they felt obligated to tell me about it. And so what I heard about American Indians were all very, very negative. 
And the other piece is that makes it really isolating is that if they told me a story, sometimes those stories were just relaying a story. And sometimes those stories was relaying a message. And if they were relaying a message, I can't go back to my family and I can't go to any of my friends because everybody's white and tell them how I feel about it. And so consequently, you're told, because I knew what was going to happen, you're told kind of the same thing of sticks and stones or just ignore them. And they just don't realize that every time somebody says something like that, it just takes a piece of flesh out of you. Things like what? What were the things they told you? Oh, um, you know, if if you're Indian, you're you're an alcoholic, you know, you're a drug user, you're promiscuous. Um, for girls, that was slutty. You were government subsidized. It was just, it's just all the names they had, all the characteristics that white society had ascribed to American Indians. I gather that you looked different from your adopted parents and and that that was difficult. You know, I didn't, it's so interesting. I didn't see it as difficult when I was younger. The difficulty didn't really arise until I was in junior high. But I do remember you get a very clear message as a young child of what color you should be or what color is acceptable. I can remember my mom and I laying on the grass and looking for four-leaf clovers, and our arms were close together. And I looked at her, you know, white arm, and it's covered with freckles. And I said, oh, my gosh, your skin is so pretty. (laughs) And she said, oh, I would give anything to have, you know, your beautiful brown skin. But when I think back on that conversation now, it's, it's a little bit heartbreaking. Can you put these adoptions uh, in the 1950s and 60s into some broader context for us? What was the thinking behind uh, taking children from their birth parents? Well, basically, what they wanted to do is it was, it was kind of on the heels of of an assimilation policy of, you know, breaking up the reservations and and moving Indian people into urban centers to find jobs, which produced, um, in, in a lot of cases, really challenging results. And so this was kind of a continuation of that, is how are we going to deal with the Indian problem? Well, why don't we go ahead and uh, take these kids and remove them off the reservation and place them with white families, and they will become assimilated and uh, the Indian problem will just go away. And so that's, that was kind of the focus of a, of a study that was called the Indian Adoption Project that was, that was testing to see how well kids would adapt to this situation and, and how well families would adapt. And, and three years into the project, it was deemed to be so successful that the floodgates were absolutely opened on who was going to place us. And I mean, we were placed by social workers and Catholic charities and Lutheran family services and the Methodists and the Pentecostals and the Jews. I mean, I'm telling you, every religious group got involved. And that's why there's thousands of us. How do you feel about your adoptive parents' choice? You know, I I think it's interesting because my adoptive parents represent both sides of the continuum. My mom just wanted a child. You know, she'd had several miscarriages, and she just wanted a child. And I was the first available because of this program. My dad wanted to save 
a poor Indian child, which was how this program was really put out to adoptive parents, is you can save a poor Indian child, you know, from a, a horrible future. And when you go out to save somebody, you have all kinds of expectations that are built into that kind of saving. And one of those expectations is that the child has to be grateful for what you've provided them, regardless of how they feel about it. Oh. And um, so, it, yeah, it was, you know, it's, it was, it was, it's been interesting to look back on this arc and uh, see things a little bit more clearer. As we hinted at earlier in the conversation, you ran into barriers trying to find your birth mother and siblings who are part of the Salish Kootenai people. A decade passes, and finally, you find them. How would you describe the the initial connection? Wow, that's it's interesting because in you know in popular culture, there's this attitude that blood always recognizes blood. And that it's going to be a hallmark moment, and you're going to run into each other's arms, and you're going to cry, and, and it's going to be great, and you're going to walk off into the sunset. And for a lot of kids, and, and for me specifically, that's not how that worked. It's, it's awkward, because what you're doing is you're, you're seeing your own skin color reflected probably for the first time in a very real way. And you may or may not be prepared to see that. I was surprised to to see that they didn't look like me as much as I thought they would. Huh. I was surprised to see my birth mom uh, looked more like a photograph out of an Edward S. Curtis book than than me. And I think what was really disconcerting about that is when I looked at her, I didn't see her. I saw me in the future, <laughs> and it's it plays a mind game. And if you do create a relationship, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort in order to do that. What they don't tell you about the popular culture uh, moment of finding is that a lot of times these relationships fizzle after a relatively short period of time, you know, maybe a few months or maybe a year, maybe a couple of years, because there's no foundation on which to build a relationship. And there has to be kind of a unifying idea that it, that a relationship is wanted. Yeah, I think that those reunions are so idealized, and we forget all of the nuances that make them difficult, if not impossible. Were you ever able to ask your mother what it was like for her to have a child taken away? Um, the first conversation we had was extremely awkward. Because she spent a good portion of the time staring down at her lap, um, crying, because there was a lot of shame that she had lost three of her nine children to the social workers. And that's about as much as we explored that arena. It was very painful, I think. What is the nature of your relationship with her now? Well, she passed away. I had visited with her four times. The first time was awkward. Uh, the second time was awkward for me because that was a little bit more real. Hmm. The third time was probably our most healing conversation uh, that we had. We talked about a lot of things, and, and I could see her for who she was instead of who I wanted her to be. 
Um, and the fourth time was was really challenging because she was at the end of her life, and I wasn't prepared to see her like that. So more loss. Right. As you say, the, the thrust of this adoption program was assimilation. At one point, a third of all Indian children in the United States had been uh, removed from their birth homes. Then in the 1970s, a new law came along, the Indian Child Welfare Act. It had bipartisan support, and essentially it put a greater emphasis in adoption proceedings on whether a child is a member of an Indian tribe or an eligible member do, do you think the Indian Child Welfare Act is still needed? Absolutely, the Indian Child Welfare Act is still needed because I truly believe, I mean, we didn't choose to be a racial identity group. This was not of our choosing. This was put into place when they started putting together the Dawes rolls of, you know, you have to be so much Indian blood. And so as far as I'm concerned, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that this is who you are and then say, you know, you're a constitutional hazard. I think the other piece is, I believe, and not everybody agrees with me, and, and I'll say that right now, but the powers that be have always been after the land. And every assimilation program and every assimilation project that has been put into place has been to fragment and um, and break apart American Indian people and American Indian tribes. None of it has been put into place to protect us. And if you break us apart enough, the idea is, is that we'll just disappear. And guess what? That land will now be available. And that's what I think they're after. They're after the land. They're after the resources. Help someone understand that who is not as close to this as you are and who thinks, my, that sounds conspiratorial, or why would the U.S. government act that way? So let's go back into history a little bit. Let's go to, let's go to the... Indian Removal Act of 1830, an act that was put into place by President Andrew Jackson. And in this act, he was going to move five tribes from the southeast um, in, in the U.S. up to the newly opened Oklahoma Territory. And it was couched in terms of, you know, we just, there's a lot of skirmishes going on. We want to protect them. Um, and so this is going to be the better place for them. Now, never mind that they were asked to leave their homelands, never mind that they were asked to leave their ancestral spaces, never mind that they were asked to, you know, go 1,500 miles over into a piece of land that looked nothing like what they left. And basically what you find out is that opened up 25 million acres of land for homesteading. Will you talk just a little bit about your relationship with the the tribe today, the folks on the reservation? Um, as you said, your mother passed away, but I know that you, you still have a blood family. Can you talk about those relationships and, and maybe contrast that with the relationships today with your adoptive family? Well, both of my parents and my adoptive family are, are passed away also. And... The relationship that I had, my mom was always happy that I found my family. She didn't want to have an interaction with them. That was a little bit too close 
for comfort. Hmm. Uh, my dad was not happy that I tried to do a search at all because he wanted to be the only person. When I talk with my reservation family, I have one sister that I'm I'm very close to. I have a one brother that I'm very close to, and I have another brother that you know I text or or talk with several times a month, and. And these are really strong, strong relationships. But as I said, they've taken a lot of effort to create. And in fact, um, my youngest brother, upon the passing of my mom, or our mom, I should say, you know, we were talking and we always came back to her. And she was the central part of our conversation. And finally, he looked at me and, and he said, you know, it's, it might not be a bad thing that she's gone. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, because it gives us a space to have our own relationship that doesn't just revolve around her. And I knew that it had been a successful reunion at that point. Susan, thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Susan Harness of Fort Collins is the author of Bitter Root, a Salish memoir of transracial adoption. She spoke with Ryan Warner last December. In January, a federal appeals court will rehear arguments challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act, which sets guidelines for the adoption of Native American children. have a lot of decisions to make when they're getting married, including what last name to take. Two Colorado women recently decided to settle that question their own way. CPR's Claire Cleveland was there for the big reveal. I don't know about anybody else, I have never been so excited to announce a game in my life. At this roller derby matchup, it's not a trophy that's on the line. It's forever. It's historical. It's unprecedented. It's a name. Hilary Vaskovic and Samara Paparol are getting married. They've come up with an unusual way to decide which of their last names they will share. In Gunnison, on the eve of their wedding at an outdoor skating rink, they've formed two teams, the Busca Victors and the Red Hot Chili Pepperells. And the winning team determines which name they'll share. At the whistle, the jam is gonna start. Vaskovic and Pepperell are both jammers on Denver's roller derby team where they usually play together. Jammers are the ones who earn points by breaking through the defensive players to complete laps. But tonight, they're playing against each other. They knew that a roller derby match would be the perfect way to kick off their wedding weekend and choose a name in a way that feels true to them. There have been so many people online that want us to do a combination name, Buscarole or Pepper Vic, and I'm just like, nope, 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 nope. nope. <laughs> you know, or the, the super lesbian thing to do to hyphenate a name, you know, I'm like, to me, that's, that's also a shtick. I'm like, let's just be us. Both names are cool. I'm happy to have either one. With something so personal, they wanted the bout to be competitive. So they recruited their roller derby friends to play on their teams. They've traveled the world playing this sport. They're not about to make the game an easy win for either team. We actually fought pretty hard tooth and nail over the rosters, making sure that, you know, we had 
what feels like a very level playing field so that we provide a really honest bout because I want it to be real. Pepperell agrees. If I lose, I'm going to lose to a team that I respect. And if we win, you're going to lose to a team that you respect. The pair met in 2016 when Boscovic was recruited as a coach for a roller derby camp in Auckland, New Zealand, which is where Pepperell is from. It was pretty much an immediate attraction and uh, we haven't stopped talking since. This spring, Pepperell finally made her way to Boscovic's home state here in Colorado. That's what we want. We want to be able to spend our lives together. Um, and so the, the way that we're doing this, the way that we're having this ceremony and the way that we're having the game, I feel like is the best way for us to make it the most us. Back at the game, the Red Hot Chili Pepperells are leading, but the Busca Victors are fighting hard to catch up. Miskovic breaks through the pack and quickly makes her way around the track again. And again. And again. And again. Everyone is standing. They're eagerly anticipating the score. Before the last three minutes of the game, the teams were almost tied. And with that, they have a name. Afterward, they enter a bar packed with their teammates and family to celebrate their new name. Boscovic says the game was a hard-fought win and that her bride-to-be was a tough contender. We didn't stop you one single bit. Very proud of the display my teammates and your teammates put on for this tiny town in the middle of nowhere, but the middle of everywhere right now. I love it. Today was like the big day that we've been almost putting more energy and, and focus on than the winning, but tomorrow we get to just like really celebrate what this thing is really all about, which is love. At every step, they've crafted their wedding weekend to reflect what's most important to them, friends, family, and roller derby. The next day, they walk down the aisle with their dogs, Danny and Janet, and now, they're together, in the same place, playing on the same team as the Boscovics. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News. If music be the food of love, play on. The opening words to Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. For Denver musician Tom Hagerman, that line cuts right to the heart of why he plays music and why he was game when the Denver Center for the Performing Arts tapped him to give a musical makeover to their production of Twelfth Night. of Shakespeare's romantic comedy refers to the twelfth night after Christmas Day, historically an occasion for feasting and revelry. Servants would dress up as their masters, men as women, and so forth. Shakespeare drew from these rituals for the play's gender-bending plot. It's just about lovers, you know, and people falling in love, and there's some gender confusion, and it's such a sweet idea of humanity. Just Everybody's just falling in love with everybody and not sort of caring. Tom Hagerman is best known as a member of the Denver band Devachka, but this is not his first foray outside the world of rock and roll. He's collaborated with the Colorado Symphony, the Wonderbound Dance Company, and in 2016, he made new musical arrangements for the DCPA's production of Sweeney Todd. 
Artistically, Hagerman says returning to the theater was a no-brainer. Plus, he's no stranger to Shakespeare. I mean, I could recite a little Hamlet if you want. <laughs> I read Shakespeare uh, the same way other people come up with, like, that would be a great band name kind of games. I used to, on like my solo records, I would just flip through Shakespeare books and pluck a line out of it. And that would be the name of like a track. I just love the, the way a sentence of his will just nail an idea. It's such a beautiful use of language. Twelfth night, Hagerman returned with music director Angela Steiner and artistic director Chris Coleman to compose music that is performed on stage by the actors themselves. True to Devochka's own style, the score is an eclectic musical stew, a little old world with some unique instrumentation. So I wanted to use bazookis, which is originally a Greek instrument. There's like big mandolins. It gives it an exotic flavor, and I ended up asking some of the actors to play hand drums because Chris asked me for these jam sessions and I figured you can't have sort of a hippie jam circle without some djembes. I mean, if you've ever been up to Pearl Street in Boulder, you will see the djembes in full effect. Hagerman composed music for the DCPA Theatre Company's production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, which runs through December 22nd. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill, along with my colleague Ryan Warner. Our executive producer is Carl Bielik, producers Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Alexandra McMahon. Our audio engineers are Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, Shane Rumsey, Luis Higa, and Natasha Watts. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Find all the ways to reach us at cpr.org connect. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters or connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. Subscribe to the Colorado Matters podcast through your favorite podcast service. Thanks for joining us today. You're listening to CPR News.